So you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be finishing John chapter 1 today with a message titled, Come and See. And I'm just going to start out the message this morning by asking you a quick question. Have any of you experienced one of those rare, perfect moments in life? And I'm talking about those rare, perfect moments in life where it seems like time slows down and you just kind of want to live in that 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 moment forever. You have this incredible sense of feeling of joy and peace and contentment and fulfillment. Something that you have looked forward to for a long time has finally happened. Maybe for some of you it was graduating school. Maybe it was some of you it was back even when you were a teenager and you got your first kiss. Um, Maybe getting married or different things like that. And I experienced one of those types of moments uh, several years ago when we went out and took a trip out west, and we went out, uh, drove all the way to Washington State. We saw Mount Rushmore. We saw the Badlands of South Dakota. We saw the, the huge ranges and mountains in Wyoming, and the Rocky Mountains. And then we went and saw Yellowstone National Park. And if you've never been to Yellowstone National Park, you've got to put it on your bucket list. You really need to see Yellowstone National Park. There's just such er areas of such immense grandeur there and such awesome things to look at that it just, it just makes you stand in awe of God's creation. And one of those times for me when I was there, one of my favorite times was standing at the observation point in an area called the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. And at Grand Canyon to the Yellowstone, there's a parking area, you walk down a trail, and you stand on this observation platform, and you see the upper falls right away. And the upper falls, are, they're really wide, they're 109 feet high, and there's so much water pouring over that thing, it creates its own wind. So you're just in this swirling wind, and wet, and, and just hearing the roar of these waterfalls. Matter of fact, they say that there's so much water coming over there, that it just about matches Niagara Falls. I mean, that's how much water is coming over this thing. And it's just, you're just amazed. And if you're really kind of a little bit braver, there's another trail that goes off and, and kind of slippery rocks and everything. And you go down this trail and you get to see the lower falls. The lower falls are over 300 feet high and have just as much um, water pouring over them. And you go down to the lower falls, and because there's not as many people that go down there, you get to see a lot of the wildlife standing around. You can see a grizzly bear sitting on the other side and, and see the bald eagles flying over the top of you. And, and ju you just stand there and you're just amazed. And it was one of those movies, that, or I'm not movies, one of those moments in life where I just felt I could just stand, and if God would freeze me right there, I could spend eternity in that spot. It was one of those kind of moments in my life. And a lot of the reasons I think that we are in such a moral decline in this country, which manifests itself like things in the school shootings this last week, is that people, whether they know it or not, they're chasing after this idea of finding and living forever in that kind of perfect moment. As much as that, that, that boy that shot up the school as much as he was messed up, that's what he was really looking for. He was looking to be notorious. He was looking to be famous. He was looking to be well-known. And he wanted to live in that perfect moment where everybody knew his name and everybody um, knew exactly what he did. And he just sacrificed everything in his life to achieve that kind of nefarious goal in his life. But it's not just people who do evil. 
For the Jewish people of the first century, the idea of the perfect moment, the idea that they could sit in that moment and want to live there forever, it was all wrapped up in this idea of the Messiah appearing to Israel. At the time that Jesus came, it had been 400 years since the last prophet has died, and 400 years since they had had a fresh revelation of God, from God. And Israel, in fact, isn't even a nation anymore at Jesus' time. It exists as six different regions, governed by puppet governors who are subject to Rome. And the dream of the Messiah dominated the average person's thoughts. And they had, they had this yearning for this person to, to come and be revealed, to bring them in to that perfect life that they so desperately craved. And it's that person that John the, Baptized, John the Baptizer spent a year proclaiming and now is about to point out to everyone. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. It's going to be a little bit of a lengthy um, version of script or uh, verses of scripture here. We're going 35 through 51. The next day, John was there with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Then the two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and he following, and he asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you saying? Come, Jesus replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said, who, fo who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from a town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one who Moses wrote about in the law, the one who the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? How can anything good come out of there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, Philip said. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree? You're going to see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this first chapter of John, through everything that we have learned. And I look forward, Father, to seeing what you're going to teach us in the rest of this gospel. But I ask today, Lord, that you focus our minds on what we just read, and so that we can see the importance of coming and seeing, and how you guide us to bring other people with us to meet you. Lord God, I ask this in your name. Amen. Some of you who were here when I began the Gospel of John series 
Remember that I said that there was a pastor who was an expert of, of hermeneutics, who uh, hermeneutics is a science of making sermons. And he said that when he studies the Gospel of John in the first chapter, he found 192 sermons that he could preach out of John just in the first chapter. Don't worry, we've only gone through four here. But as I read and I outlined this section of Scripture, I realized that just in the section we just read, there's probably at least a dozen lessons and sermons that we could pull out of this section alone. And this morning I'm going to um, cover it with a bit of a broader brush, and I'm going to focus on the, a few of the key points that I believe are going to help us to see that the central idea that John is trying to convey to us about Jesus today will help us understand three things about how God works in our lives. First thing we're going to see is how God works in spreading the gospel. It's God's work. We'll also see God's way of making disciples. We'll also see God's way of guiding us in our lives. And any one of these topics could deserve its own sermon series, but we're going to hit the high points about it this morning. So let's begin with the, the first one, God's way of spreading the gospel, which is what Jesus said, come and see. A quick show of hands, we're going to be a little interactive this morning. How many people here were born into a Christian home and that's all you had known? You were born as a Christian, pretty much. Okay. How many of you who are not born into a Christian home came to faith in Jesus through a church or an evangelical service of some type? Tammy, you know, Tammy's got her hand raised. Wasn't raised in a Christian home, neither was I. How many people came to faith because of a friend or a relative telling them about Jesus and presenting the gospel to them. That would be me. So we see that God uses all kinds of different ways to bring people into the kingdom of God. He's not into just one way of spreading the gospel. It's not just the church. It's not just an altar call. In fact, I would say in my experience right now, in the way that this nation is going, altar calls are actually becoming the least desirable way of trying to bring people into the kingdom because it generally produces an emotional response instead of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example of anybody ever been to like a, a Promise Keepers or Billy Graham crusade, and you see hundreds and hundreds of people go forward from that area and yet, not a single person shows up at a church ever. So I, I, I think that we have to look at God's way of doing it. And Jesus' way of spreading the gospel was a simple st statement. Come and see. Because John wrote his gospel in very educated Greek, sometimes it loses its meaning when we translate it into other language. So let me unpack the statement of come and see for you a little bit. The phrase come and see isn't just a request for you to take a quick look. That's not what he's saying. You know, when Tammy and I bought our SUV outside, people wanted to come and see the new SUV. They wanted to sit in the driver's seat. They kind of wanted to look around it, walk around it, open the doors, pop the hood, do all that kind of stuff. They wanted to just take a quick look, give us their opinion, and, and uh, you know, tell us what they thought. But it wasn't like they were going to go, come and see didn't mean I'm going to go buy this car from you. They just wanted a quick look. That's not the come and see that John is talking about here. A better way to say this in English is, is to say come and spend some time observing. Take some quality time and perceive the truth of a situation. In other words, we can't spread the gospel with a 30-second ad. 
Not even if we pay for it or the Super Bowl ad where millions and billions of people are going to see it. You can't spread the gospel that way. You can plant a seed, but it's not going to effectively spread the gospel. The gospel isn't going to be spread sitting through an hour-long church service. Jesus, By Jesus saying, come, he is saying, walk away from what you are doing and reside with me. He's saying, pull yourself out of your regular life and watch what happens to you when you get closer to my people who are really my disciples. And that's one of the key reasons the church exists, which is to make disciples. And Jesus' method of making disciples is not the modern way. If you go to like a bigger church, a mega church, or anything like that, they'll have a whole program in how to, how to bring you from unbelief to belief and um, into being a new believer. Basically, a discipleship program would look like this, I know, because I've written them. We get them into church. We let the pastor preach them into a decision. Make sure they attend as often as possible. Back when I got saved, as often as possible meant every time the church door was unlocked for every reason, you were there. Amen. Today it means two out of every six Sundays, statistically speaking. That's a regular church attender for most people. Then we signed them up for discipleship or a new believers class so that they know what the basics of the faith are. We try to get the least amount of commitment from them because we all know we have busy lives and this is just another thing on the calendar that we have to do. That's the way people treat it. We make sure that, that um, they know that they're supposed to give to the church. And really what we mean is tithe. But, you know, we, we tell them that we have to give. It's very important to many churches, very important to most pastors, and it's typically part of a modern church discipleship plan. Then we sign them up for membership. Then if we can try to twist their arm a little bit, we try to get them to do something for the church and get them to volunteer in some way. And that's what we call a modern disciple. That's the way it happens in a lot of churches. And note that there's very little emphasis on becoming part of a community here. It's basically what we can get out of you and what we and we're going to give you some things and we're, we're going to try to get some things out of you, but there's very little emphasis on family, very little emphasis on community here. And that's the polar opposite to what Jesus is saying here by saying to come and see. In fact, I would say much of the modern American church right now is a complete antithesis to what Jesus meant it to be where you want to invite them into an experience and see the life-changing power of the gospel in their own lives. The salvation experience is not just a one-time occurrence. If you are being a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're not just, it's not just a one-time thing. We, we went through that in our Sunday school this morning. When did you get saved? When did you, you know, come to know Jesus? Yes, that date is very important. That's your spiritual birthday, and I don't want to, to make it sound like it's not. But your salvation is a lifelong experience. The Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not just a one-time stamp and you're going to heaven. It's work out your salvation. Help Jesus make you more like him. And it's not just about you. Too many people personalize the gospel and they think it's just a transaction that happens between you and God. But that's not what it is. This is a transaction that is supposed to place you into a community of believers so that you can come and see the power of God working in their life and allow that power of God to start working in your life. 
It's, 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 it's those stones rubbing against stone, iron sharpening iron, smoothing out those rough spots and, and creating the character of Jesus within people. It's not you and God against the world. It's you existing within a community of believers and disciples that stand ready to help serve and save the world through living this gospel message. That's what we want the world to come and see. We don't want them to come and see just a polished church service. We don't want them to come and just hear a sermon. We want them to come and see our lives and see how much Jesus means to us. And we're not going to get that through flashy advertisements. All these people making millions right now on church growth ideas, when we start doing what Jesus told us to do, all of that stuff is just going to be discarded. And why do I know this? Because I have a Bible. I read in Acts chapter 2 how 120 people previously scared out of their wits, hiding in an upper room in Jerusalem, got touched by the Holy Spirit, they went out and started proclaiming the gospel, and within an hour, 3,000 people became disciples of Jesus Christ because they saw the change in these people. It wasn't just a great message. If you hermeneutically and exegetically, those, those big words that mean sermon preparation, if you look at Peter's sermon, it was horrible. <laughs> Scholastically speaking, if I would have submitted that in school, they would have put F. Go back and do it again. But because he had the power of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of Jesus showing through him, 3,000 people were cut to the heart and became disciples of Jesus. Did they all stay disciples? I don't know. But what I do know is that in the early church, people leaving the faith was a huge exception rather than the rule. But today it's the opposite. So we have to ask ourselves, are we really disciples of Jesus Christ? Does this church exist just for itself? Or does it exist for the reason that Jesus Christ came to establish this thing called the church? As you think about that, let me finish today's message with this point. And it's a long finish, so don't start putting on your coats yet. Think about something in life that you have longed to do. We kind of started out with this idea, but think about it again. If you can think back far enough, maybe it was a high school graduation or graduating from college. Maybe it was meeting the person that you married or having that, the birth of your first child, something that, that you were really looking forward to. And those days get here and you're ecstatic that the wait is finally over and you get to experience that thing that you've waited so long for. Now I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes when he started to call his first disciples. You imagine him from eternity past coming up with this plan of salvation with, with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and them saying, you're going to meet these 12 guys, and they're going to be your disciples. They're going to be your initial soldiers in carrying this message out to the world. The Bible says that Andrew was the first one called. He's so excited about finding Jesus, he runs home and grabs his brother Cephas, or Simon Peter. Simon Peter is the last person you and I are going to choose to get the religious movement off the ground. I mean, this is kind of like going down to the corner bar and finding the loudest, most obscene, 
cussing drunk there and saying, I'm going to build a church with that guy. I mean, you'd, you'd be crazy to do that, wouldn't you? But look what Jesus does. He has a very, he's a bully, a very colorful way of expressing himself. And je- that's the one that Jesus chooses to lead the church after his crucifixion. Simon Peter meets Jesus, and Jesus is so excited about meeting him for the first time in the flesh that he immediately gives him a nickname, he calls him Petros, or Peter, which means Rocky. He immediately calls this guy Rocky. Now, how often do you do that when you meet somebody? It's not like if, if somebody introduces you to somebody named Bob, and you decide on the spot that, Bob, I'm not going to call you Bob, I'm going to call you Stubby. Because you're short, you're kind of stout, and you have a weird haircut. So I'm going to call you Stubby. Do you do that when you first meet a person? No, but this is what Jesus does. The point is you have to really know a person to give them a nickname. You have to be already intimate with them a little bit to, to be able to, to connect with them on something like that. And the irony here is that Simon Peter is far from being rocky at this point. He is far from being the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on. He's a vacillating, emotionally weak man who Jesus knows is going to deny him someday. To his face, in his time of greatest need, Peter's going to deny him. And yet Jesus calls him Rocky because Jesus calls which was not into being by giving Peter this name. He was showing that it's going to be the rock I build my church on. And it's going to be through my power. It's going to be through my influence. It's going to be through my spirit living within you. And that's Jesus' reaction to meeting Peter. But there was another meeting, first meeting that I want to focus on a bit more. I want to show you three quick points to Jesus meeting Nathaniel that will really show us just how God guides all of us into relationship and into discipleship with Jesus. Now, Nathaniel is told about this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, being the Messiah. Now, Nathaniel had, must have had this look of absolute amazement on his face when they're telling him that because any good Jewish person who knows even just a little bit of Torah knows that there is no way a Messiah can come from Nazareth. Micah 5.2 says he has to come from Bethlehem. So immediately he objects. He's like, uh, look, I know you probably failed Theology 101 in school, but I'm the Torah expert here. Messiah, nothing good could come from Nazareth. You know Nazareth. It's a dirt poor town on the south end of Samaria. It's all full of Samaritans, Gentiles, and to say it's a backwater area would be an understatement. No one of importance could ever come out of that town. Give me a break. And I can just imagine that, that Jesus is, is standing in the background just kind of grinning at this point knowing Nathaniel's words, but still looking forward to meeting him. And it brings us to the three last points I want to make today. Number one, Jesus was guiding you into relationship with him before you even got saved. Before you even really knew who Jesus was, he was guiding you toward that point to where you would be saved. And his hand has always been in your life, protecting you and leading you to that specific spot. Note what Nathaniel was doing right before he met Jesus. He's sitting under a tree, reading scriptures. Specifically, we know from the, the context of, of John chapter 1 here, specifically it was probably Genesis 28, where Jesus or, or Jacob has a dream about angels ascending and descending a ladder or a stairway between heaven and earth. 
Jesus uses that one piece of knowledge to show Nathaniel who he's talking to. And this incident was a culmination of a plan for Nathaniel's life that Nathaniel didn't even realize was happening. But Jesus knew. Jesus has placed a hunger to know God within Nathaniel before he ever met him. Nathaniel could have been doing anything else under that tree. He could have been whittling, he could have been whistling, he could have been watching apples drop. We don't know. He could have been doing anything else under that tree, but he was hungry to know God and know his word. And Jesus uses that hunger to show Nathaniel who he is. And Jesus still does that today. We don't often see it in others, but if you think back to how God guided you to the cross, or how he took you from unbelief to belief, you will see the many people, the many situations, the many passions even that he has placed in your life for various things. And even sometimes your failures, they all culminated to a specific time when you knelt at the cross and started a lifelong pursuit of Jesus and becoming one of his disciples. And I praise God for that. Second thing it shows us is that Jesus has always been watching you. Most of us can think of a few specific times in our life where Jesus was really real to you. Maybe it was during a church service. Maybe you were out in the woods or, or by yourself and you were praying and you felt that power and presence of God fill you to overflowing. And we look at all those instances and we think that, that somehow during that time you popped up on God's radar and he blessed you because of it. And then after a while it fades and it seems that God grows distant again. But really that's not the case. Jesus already knew Nathaniel intimately. Jesus even knew his personality and mannerisms before he, before he ever met Nathaniel. Verse 47 said, Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no receipt or no deceit. The translation there is here's a guy that tells it like it is, no matter what the consequences. He's blunt, he's brash, and he's going to tell you exactly what he thinks. That's what that verse means. You remember Joel Friday from Dragnet? Maybe I'm dating myself here. If anybody that's under 40 probably doesn't know this, but Joel Friday was a TV detective in Los Angeles, and he was known for the phrase, just the facts. Just the facts. I don't want your opinion. I don't want your feelings. I just want the facts of what's going on. And that's Nathaniel. He's a black and white view of the world. And Jesus placed that gift within Nathaniel, and he will use that gift later on to help form the doctrine of the early church before sending him to India to proclaim the gospel. The third thing we learn about how God guides us into gospel truth is this, is that both Nathaniel and Peter show us the one final thing and that God has a plan, and you are part of it. Amen. That's incredible that the God of the universe who holds every atom together by his divine power has a specific plan for you and me. Oftentimes, this is where pastors get off into a prosperity thing. But that's not the legitimate focus of business discipleship. God is calling you into a deeper relationship with Jesus. And that deeper relationship with Jesus is properly called discipleship. The Bible has to be understood within the culture it was written to. And in biblical time, a disciple, another way to describe him is an apprentice. 
A person who goes and lives with the master for an extended period of time. They leave everything behind. They leave businesses behind. They leave jobs behind. They leave family behind. And they go sit at the feet of this master who is going to teach them whatever it is that he is the master of. In this case, Jesus is teaching them the ways of God for three years. You want to talk about an intense discipleship program, sit at the feet of Jesus for three years, and they would sit there until the master would declare them ready to go out and be a master in their own right of that whatever they were going to, whether it was silversmithing or, or woodshop or woodworking or anything. They would sit there. And in this case, Jesus trains them for three years to become the disciples and the apostles of the early church. Jesus had to plan for the 12 disciples and he has that same kind of plan for you and me today. And he's calling you today to more deeply follow him. He's calling you to enter into that deeper relationship with his discipleship program called the church. You all have a plan, a purpose, and a ministry to fulfill. But you can't do that if you treat the church as a calendar item that you're trying to get to instead of the thing that you very that you live your very life for. You know, Jesus was guiding, watching over you to see his plan fulfilled in your life. And when Jesus' plan is fulfilled in your life, that is when people can come and see what the church is supposed to be about. They can come and see who Jesus really is in your life. You're not just talking about him, you're living him. And that is what the church is supposed to be in this day. And that is the only way the church in this day will win back the influence it once had. Because it will become the church that Jesus intended.